Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Dave Eggers, whose latest novel is The Parade. Dave Eggers is the author of several acclaimed novels, including The Circle, What is the What, and A Hologram for the King, He's perhaps best known for the award-winning memoir, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Genius, and he is also the founder of McSweeney's, an independent publishing company based in San Francisco. He's written for the San Francisco Chronicle, The Guardian, and many other publications. Dave Eggers, your latest novel, The Parade, takes place in an unnamed country and deals with a couple of contractors who are building a road following a civil war. I understand that the idea from this came from a trip to the Sudan originally in 2004. Is that correct? 2006 was the trip. I went to South Sudan many times, but the time, so in 2006, I went with Valentino Achakdang, a friend of mine who uh, I wrote a, a, a book about his life called What is the What? And he and I traveled all throughout the region near his hometown, and we saw a giant highway being built through a very rural post-conflict zone in South Sudan, and it was meant to connect uh, northern Sudan and southern Sudan. But it was not being built by a Sudanese team or a South Sudanese team or Kenyan. It was being built by a Swedish paving company. It really struck me then how incongruous or unexpected that was, and also what motivations there would have been to have this company and all of their equipment coming from so far away, because it was unnecessarily far away. There's certainly paving expertise all over Africa. But it got into my head who these guys were on the ground, you know, what they knew about South Sudan, what their motivations were, what their inner lives were. And then since then, all over the world, from Djibouti to Bosnia to uh, Saudi Arabia, I kept seeing contractors abroad, whether it was Filipino contractors in uh, in Saudi Arabia or whether it was Scandinavian contractors in other places or sometimes American and now Chinese contractors everywhere. I was just became sort of really intrigued by that concept of these workers who might be paving a road in Fresno, transported to a zone they knew nothing about. And the motivations for having them there and doing this project are so far beyond their understanding. So that was the genesis for the book. That was also 13 years ago. Yeah. And you've written several books between that. Was that just something sitting in your back of your mind that you might go, yeah, maybe someday I'll either write fiction or nonfiction about it? Sometimes novels have a really long gestation period. Typically for me, it's about six years these days between when the idea first occurs to me and then I'll take some notes or maybe do an outline. And then over the years, 
I take notes in a funny way. I have like just sheets of eight and a half by 11 paper that I write notes. And then it goes into a pile dedicated to that idea. And sometimes nothing comes of it. And sometimes that book finds its right time and right tone. So I think I wrote the first draft of this maybe six, seven years ago and put it aside. I always think books are best if you do have that cooling off period where you can come back to it with a cold eye and uh, self-edit and make sure that you've tested all the ideas thoroughly and that you're examining the pros with a cool head. But yeah, this one is maybe the longest gestation period that I've had. And sometimes there are projects in between that were maybe a little bit more time sensitive. You know, like I wrote this book, The Monk of Mocha, in between and uh, about Mokhtar al-Khanshali and his involvement in the Yemeni civil war. That was time sensitive. And so sometimes the projects that don't have that time sensitivity sort of wait for their right time. And But, you know, there's something sort of timeless about this theme, you know, the contractor abroad, the pawn in a game, the design of which the humans on the ground can't see, you know, can't envision and have no conception of. When that original draft was written six years ago, did the ending that we now have, was that there? Was that part of the original conception? Yeah, the ending was always built into it. Most often, I know the ending before I begin. I know the shape of the book. There's been a few times, including something I'm working on now that I don't know the ending exactly. But typically, I feel like it's really hard for me, at least, to get started if I don't know the overall shape of what I'm doing. To me, it's just like the four corners of a canvas. You have to know the parameters, the boundaries. And also, endings are so important. This book, the ending is very important. And please do not go straight to the ending, anybody. But, but That's yeah. a short book. So. Yeah, you, <laughs> right. You don't need to cheat. You can still, uh, you can read it in a sitting or two. And it's supposed to be a little bit of a, a bullet train to that ending. That brings up the question, the decision to turn it into a short novel rather than a short story, which it conceivably could be as well, since there's only two main characters. Yeah. You know, even at the beginning, I love short novels. You know, I mean, I read Animal Farm again every year. I read Gadsby every couple of years. I read so many shorter novels. Didion's novels are, tend to be on the shorter side. So I think it's such a beautiful form when done right. And actually, like, things fall apart. Chinwe Achebe's book is, is also a short novel. It's not called that, but it's not very long. It also can be read in a sitting. And I think it's a form that is kind of neglected here in the U.S. now. If you go to a lot of countries, France included, like, the short novel is still kind of expected and respected and widely practiced. A short novel is to the point. You don't have to have all of the secondary stuff yeah. that everybody throws in. Right. You begin, you start, you get to the end. Yeah. But it also means usually the ending is more important than yeah. a bigger novel. Yeah. I think all those things are true. There was a point where I had finished it. And I remember a friend of mine, a novelist, saying, well, she was very encouraging about the shape of it and the size of it. But she said, you know, some people would 
expand it, fluff it, you know, to make it a little bit. And I thought, well, that's actually going to really distort the intended shape and the shape that it needs to be. And I think, you know, sometimes you just know when I always thought, you know, I long time ago, I would write books that were a little bit more like Jackson Pollock, like all over and, you know, see if it all holds together in some way, even though it's just paint splattered all over. I was a painting student for years, so this is why all these painting metaphors. But then I really began to really love the Brancusi idea, you know, something that the shape itself and being very intentional and very polished in terms of the form, that kind of knowing that the author has the overall shape in mind and and has controlled everything to fit within it. I think that there's a a reading pleasure that ideally comes from that is being nothing extra, nothing extraneous, nothing unnecessary, nothing mistakenly put in there or some sort of red herring. And I think that sometimes we do see that in novels where you're like, you know, that whole thread there, it's totally unnecessary and it takes us away from the essence. So it's all sort of interesting to me because I really always, you know, considered myself a little bit more of a maximalist when I started out. But I love the the tension that comes from a tightly controlled book and the challenge of it to sort of work within certain constraints. I think that you end up with something a little bit more vibrating with that sort of electric tension that is also, I think, fun as a reader. Dave Eggers, let's talk a little about the content. So these two contractors, four and nine, they don't have names. You've decided to place it in a country where we don't know what it is, though there are hints that it could be Africa. You make sure not to indicate that these are Americans or Swedes or Chinese. Yeah. I think that we as Americans or as Westerners, we are always inclined for better or for worse to assume it's about us and that it's about our own complicity in sort of ill-fated or ill-conceived development projects abroad or our own imperialism or economic imperialism. In this case, it's not any of those things, really. It's not about the United States uh, in any way. It's not exclusive to us or China or any sort of global superpower. It really could be any foreign contractor that's uh, brought in. And what their role is, what their complicity is. Are they meant to engage with the local communities or is it better for them to stick to the project at hand and sort of ignore all the larger context? And so four and nine represent these two ways. Four is very sort of focused about the work and about the the straight black line running through the country, the paving, the job. And then nine is adventurous and incautious and um, engaged, but naive. And I think that both of these types of people you see in any NGO project all over the world, whether it's rural uh, Uganda or whether it's uh, Kazakhstan or whether it's... uh, You mentioned in an interview that these were the sort of people you saw building the prototypes for Trump's wall. It was... So interesting because I was near the end of writing the book when I went along with some other media members for a tour of the samples in the San Diego desert. They had those five samples. 
and I got a tour and we were given real, very wide access. The, the border security people were very open, really accessible and candid. And I thought it was actually really, it was a very interesting uh, trip because any officer that works on the border, you were allowed to interview for as long as you wanted to about anything. And they would just talk about it practically, just like any cop would, you know, about their work, enforcing the law and whatever, you know, and their thoughts about the walls in general. And they were very nuanced about it. None of them were gung-ho about the building of a wall, but they could see some upside and some downside. But meanwhile, the one group that we were not allowed to take pictures of or interview were the, the contractors, the independent construction contractors that built these samples. And they were the ones that had no dog in the fight, I guess. They didn't want to be photographs. They didn't want to be pulled into the political implications of the walls. They were just there to do the job, take the paycheck, and go home. On one level, their lack of considering the ethics of what they're doing, this is four as opposed to nine. On one level, we kind of get it because we've all been in situations where we just want to get our work done. Yeah. On the other hand, you know, if you think back to Germany and the people who built the concentration camps, on some level, you cannot escape the ethics of what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always uh, the ultimate just following orders uh, idea always gets back to the Nazis. And so <laughs> it's, it's a Godwin's law, you know. Yeah. Um, it's like, yeah, three steps to, to uh, the Nazis. And so I think you know, this is definitely a, a much lower level of complicity and the uses of whether it's the Chinese building a port in Indonesia that, or Pakistan that right now is for maritime trade, but ultimately could be converted quickly to military purposes. Like that's happening as we speak everywhere through their Belt and Road project. And Everyone locally is going along with it because the advantages of having a deep sea port that's uh, state-of-the-art are so great for so many of these countries that need that type of trade. And they are willfully blind to the future implications. 20 years from now, who knows where, what the uh, Chinese plans will be or whether their sort of economic imperialism will turn into something else, but they will be well positioned for like a very quick military conversion and, and they'll have all the tools that they need all over the world. But the builders of it and the local governments that, that bring them in and, you know, Italy just signed a deal with China for Belt and Road, all of these things, they have to sort of be uh, a little bit willfully ignorant, a little bit hopeful, have a lot of faith in whatever rhetoric is being espoused for, you know, the reason for these projects, but knowing that it's like a, a very fine line between uh, benign motives and more nefarious aims. You make the decision inside the parade to have Nine get himself involved with the locals. From your perspective in writing that, how hard was it to do that and still maintain the notion that this could be Africa, South America, or uh, Southeast Asia? It could be uh, Utah, you know, like uh, for sure, because there will probably be our lack of infrastructure 
development and sort of uh, who knows, maybe we become part of the uh, Belt and Road Project too because the Chinese, they have deep pockets and they're fast about getting these projects made when, when we're not. And I could very well see a road being built through uh, rural Utah by Chinese contractors and sort of exploring that tension. I keep thinking back to the building of the railroads by the Chinese. Well, <laughs> you know, it's it's an interesting bookend, you know, from immigrants being exploited horribly during that time and now China as a global superpower having this uh, you know, outsized influence around the world. It's a really interesting um, dynamic. You know, for me, I've seen, yeah, these projects everywhere and and I think that we are always quick to assume you know this is about the US and it's about the US and Africa and some you know falling into sort of a paradigm that we know China for example is all over like Kazakhstan and Pakistan and a lot of parts of the Middle East and East Asia and some of the former Soviet republics because they need that cash they need that expertise they need that will they need all these things if they have a partner in China that can get these things done without any of their own capital going into it or very little, it's an interesting trade-off to say, wow, we're going to have a new railroad. I mean, Nigeria also, the Chinese built a railroad in uh, Nigeria, finished a few years ago, that ostensibly benefits everybody, you know, um, and benefits the Nigerian economy too. But ultimately, who, who really owns it and controls it? It's fascinating. Dave Eggers, I'd like to switch gears a bit. One of the people at McSweeney's pointed me to an article in The Guardian that you wrote about a recent uh, rally in, um, in El Paso where Beto O'Rourke was holding a rally. And this Trump rally, there were a lot of people who weren't white. It must have scared you quite a bit because in reading it, I kept thinking, oh my God, Trump could get reelected. I went down there thinking this is going to be a disaster for Trump because where would he be most more hated than along the border in a city, El Paso, that's 80% Latino? And I thought this is going to – I went down there to cover it thinking that he would be basically chased out of town. But I started at 10 in the morning. They started lining up for his rally and – the crowd got more and more diverse, and I would say at least half the people were in line were people of color, and so many uh, local families, local people from El Paso, Mexican-American families, people of color, African-American attendees, East Asian, and you name it, just sort of the whole wide technicolor rainbow of America was represented in the Trump audience, and I thought, wow. I, I've seen it before. I've been to other rallies and I've seen it, but never quite as pronounced as the El Paso rally. And not, no audience that I, no Trump rally audience that I've seen was that diverse. And so I interviewed so many people at the rally who really had very reasonable reasons to either support him fully or at least be giving him, I don't know, the benefit of the doubt. It was never sort of the black and white that I think we often get in the media where he's either the devil, which, you know, I often take this 
view myself. I mean, there's, I, I, I couldn't possibly loathe him more. But the people I interviewed were much more reasonable than me, I think, in terms of like, well, you know, I interviewed a guy that had lost his job at Toys R Us when Toys R Us went bankrupt. And he said a few days later, he got a job as a manager at Barnes & Noble. And he attributes that to the strong economy. Uh, wages are going up. There's you know, low unemployment, very low unemployment in, in El Paso. And he said, well, he's got to give him credit for that. And so many people that wanted a little bit more, more of a plan at the border that support you know, a lot of Trump's uh, ideas about the border, not necessarily a wall. But what's really encouraging, I think, and I love this part of being a journalist, is going out and just listening to people. And listening to how nuanced their views are, how unexpected they are. How, how knowledgeable they are. I mean, do they know who Betsy DeVos is? I don't know. We didn't get to Betsy DeVos. That would have been interesting. But I think that if those of us that are reading everything every day about Trump because we happen to be in the media, uh, there's a lot of people that are not reading every tweet, not reading every ridiculous statement he makes, but more like, They've got life going on, you know, they've got kids, they've got a job, they've got other things in their life than politics. So when it comes to turning their attention to who's in the White House, what matters to them are the pocketbook issues that help them, whether it's through, you know, I got a raise, so I'm going to give Trump credit, or I was afraid of ISIS, and now ISIS has been, you know diminished or defeated, that meant something to a lot of the people I talked to. And then a lot of people actually wanting uh, a little bit of a different border policy and some, um, again, I kept hearing the word like a plan or some sort of control at the border. And these were so many people whose parents or grandparents were immigrants. And so I think that I always have to remember, you know, that the sort of the stark differences were left, right, or Democrat, Republican, it's just there's so much in the middle and so many people that take from, that piece together their personal political philosophy that doesn't conform to one side or the other. And that's why you have so many voters that would vote for Bernie one day and Trump the next or vote for Obama in 2008 and 2012 and then voted for Trump in uh, uh, 2016. There's a lot of people like that. That, you know, for whom the labels and the usual designations and categories don't really apply. I don't know if you mentioned to them Trump's general corruption, putting aside Mueller, which I think most of them didn't care about anyway. But it seems like they're all going, yeah, he's terrible, but whatever. My paycheck is there. Yeah. And you know what? I think we have to remember that I think a huge swath of the public assumes that all politicians are somehow corrupt. And they have a cynicism about it because they've read so many stories over the years from Nixon on down that they assume some level of corruption and he's worse than normal, but not so far out of the category. And so for those of us that, I mean, I saw Obama as a paragon of honor and a honest man. And a, I think of the contrast as so stark, but I don't think everybody else does. When you realize that people are, again, not looking for a moral beacon or not looking for a pinnacle of reason and personal honor, they're really thinking like, well, what are his policies 
doing for me? And when you, again, when you see a booming economy and there's no way to sugarcoat it, the economy is doing very well, you know? For the moment. Yeah, for the moment. But, you know, that matters. Like that's, you know, that's a big part of it for a lot of people. And if, if unemployment were at 8 10%, then this would all be a very different conversation. Now, you've been gone to a lot of these rallies and you began going, I think, July 2017, you wrote an article about it. August 2016, actually. Oh, uh, really? Yeah, oh. right after Trump wrapped up the nomination, I went to a rally in Sacramento. Okay, so let's talk about comparing the audience from 2016 into 2017 and now into 2019. Can we see any kind of shift because it you, sort of feels as if there is and there isn't. You know what the shift was? So I, in the Sacramento rally, that was the first time. Remember, in August 2016, Trump was considered a joke still. And it was everyone's dream to have Hillary run against Trump because who could be easily more easily beat than this lunatic? And so I remember my liberal friends, uh, everybody just licking their chops, thinking this is so great. So I went to see him in Sacramento thinking this is just a novelty and uh, – and I also thought, I had believed what I had been reading, that his rallies were basically like Klan uh, rallies full of frothing white supremacists. And maybe those have existed. I don't know. I have not seen that myself. And in Sacramento, it was the most reasonable sort of normal rally of people that would have gone to a baseball game or a picnic or anything. And again, not as diverse as the El Paso rally, but pretty diverse and um, wide range of people, ages, everything. The way and why they supported him was also fairly reasonable. And it wasn't like, uh, you know, that they were buying into an overall policy of white supremacy. I didn't hear that from people. Um, although, of course, there are plenty of people that that's why they love him, but not at, so much at this rally. I came back from that and I told everybody I, I saw, I said, he could win. And they laughed at me and laughed. There's no way. What are you talking about? And I said, you know, he can win. This is a wide base of support and a lot of casual support, not maniacal, you know, brown shirt support, but like casual support. And then he won, of course. And But over the years, the one thing I saw there were more MAGA hats, more red hats at the El Paso rally than any other rally I've been to. And I would say it's about 70% of the audience, which was over 50% people of color wearing MAGA hats. And, and I have photos of this. I, I, I took all these pictures just to prove it to people that wouldn't believe me because we have to get past this cartoonish version that the media continues to put out there of the white, all white, MAGA hat wearing sort of maniacs and to say like, actually, it's much wider network of support and the MAGA hat means a lot of things to a lot of people. And it might just be that they were for sale for 10 bucks and they put one on because otherwise uh, their hair would blow around or something. It's just like there's so much nuance and so many people that are going to check one box or the other based on very small factors like did they you know did they get a raise a week before the election in 2020 it's going to be really interesting to see it suddenly occurred to me in reading your essay 
was that we could have a situation where there is a landslide for Democrats in the House and Senate and Trump wins. Yeah. Well, of course, the Electoral College still favors him. So it's going to be hard. I think the Democrats are going to have to really bring out the younger vote. And that goes toward who they're going to have as their nominee. And it's going to have to, because they're not going to win, I don't think, with everything else remaining, with the electorate being the same as it was, who came out in 2016. I don't know if they can win. And all this, the polls that say 60% of people won't vote for him no matter what, throw them all away. That's all I'm going to say is that it is going to be just as hard or much harder, actually, than 2016, because it's always hard to run against a strong economy. And if it remains where it is right now, it's going to be exceedingly hard to do because beyond all the outrages. It comes down to, are you better off now than you, you were for it? Yeah. And, you know, well, you look at your 401k, the average person, you look at what your, you know, savings are worth. You look at all of these things. It's all on the positive side of the ledger. And so that's really hard. And, you, and people are like, well, even if they agree that he's a lunatic and a buffoon and offensive, doesn't matter that much compared to how's my retirement savings? This matters to me. And then that's why I think he just abandoned healthcare because that's a pocketbook issue that he could not win. And it wasn't something that he wanted to uh, go in with an unwinnable fight. Well, that's not him. It's the people around yeah, him. Let's right? be realistic. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Dave Eggers, now that I've got you here after many years of wanting to interview yeah. you, let's go back. Your first book, your very first book was a memoir. Mm. Had you, even before that, decided on some level you were going to be a writer? You were more of an artist, right? I went to journalism school. And when I first moved out here, I was a journalist. So I wrote for SF Weekly. I mean, I was on basically on staff at SF Weekly. I did a lot of work, did some work for the Chronicle, for a lot of other magazines. I started a magazine called Might Magazine in my 20s. And then I was a feature writer in New York for some years. I went to art school for a couple of years, but, but basically I was living as a writer and a temp here in San Francisco throughout my 20s. And then the book came out at the tail end of that decade. And uh, no, until then I had not thought like, I would write or complete or have a book that anybody read. It was all kind of a shock. But I had been a nonfiction writer and a journalist and an essayist for a lot of years. That's where I thought I would stay. So the the book definitely did open up some doors I had not necessarily thought of knocking on before then. One of the things about your books, which sets many of them apart, is the relation of fiction to nonfiction. I know in Europe, they don't make that distinction, but they make it here. And it seems that Dave Eggers has been trying to fight against the distinction. Well, I'm a little bit of a purist, actually. Like, if, if something's fiction, I'm going to say it's fiction. And that's why, like, I wrote Valentino Deng's story as a novel. I didn't want any confusion about it. And I do like to be sort of explicit about what you're reading, you know? Because when I write nonfiction like Monk of Mocha, like, that's straight up journalistic nonfiction. And I don't want anyone to think, to be confused about it. But I do like the freedom to toggle between the different forms. And obviously they, you know, it's much more allowed in the rest of the world. You know, Joan Didion, Orwell, uh, even Hemingway, but so many writers that I admire, William T. Volman, 
did so much movement between those forms. And I find every story has its its right shape, its right style, its right form. And sometimes nonfiction is the best way. Sometimes a parable is the best way. Sometimes a novel. And I love, maybe I'm just restless when it comes to form, but I really need the freedom to uh, reinvent the shape of it or the form of it for every every given um, story. You wrote the screenplay for Where the Wild Things Are. You see yourself going back into movies or TV? No, that was a, at the behest of Spike Jones. I never had a thought in my life of writing a screenplay. I didn't have any training in it. He did want somebody that had not done one before. I think he wanted the untrained approach. And then we, I worked, my wife and I wrote a script and done a few other things here and there. But at this point, I don't see myself doing any more of that. It's such a hard form to do well. And my home is in books. And to do that well, I really, I can't dabble and dabble well in screenplays. And right now I just have so much I want to do in the book form that I'm going to leave screenwriting to the professionals. Dave Eggers, how many projects do you have going and what's next? Well, right now I'm doing more uh, books for kids. So there's a book that comes out, I think right around now called Tomorrow Most Likely. It's for young kids, like a bedtime book. But I've been in the working with students through 826 Valencia for so long. And I always, since I was young myself, always wanted to write books for younger readers. And now I've had that privilege to be able to do it for the last three, four years. And there's nothing more fun for a writer, I think, to be writing for kids and to hear from them. Because books mean so much when you're young. You remember where you were, what you felt, how, you know, the kid's cement is still wet. So to be able to make a little bit of an impression on that before it hardens is really uh, an honor. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.